2: Dear listener, experience the fashion revolution that is Snag and visit SnagTights.us today.
3: Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to Criminalia, where this season, we're exploring the lives and motivations of some of the most notorious lady poisoners in history. I'm Maria Tremarki. And I'm Holly Fry. And in today's episode, we're going to look at the life of Roberta
4: Elder, a woman from Georgia who was accused of poisoning more than a dozen people over the course of about 14 years, mainly so she could profit from being the sole beneficiary of each victim's insurance payout. Oh, 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 mm. In oh, the
2: Roberta won. is an
3: interesting oh, woman to talk about. We don't actually know very much at all about what her life was like before she was accused of poisoning people with everyone's favorite poison, arsenic. I know it's
4: mine. it goes in everything Uh, we don't actually even know what year she was born although based on reports from her trial she was probably born between about 1907 and 1909
3: We do know that she lived in Atlanta, but we don't know for sure if she was native to the city. We can't even be sure what year she died in or if she died in prison.
4: But we know for certain that Roberta was accused of killing several people, all of whom were her relatives. Though the killings likely started as early as 1938, no one suspected anything of Roberta until Reverend William Elder, who was the Baptist minister, Andrew Berger's husband died after eating a snack of bananas and cheese in his lunch in 1952.
3: I have so many questions about that combination of food. I Googled this.
4: (laughs) 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 And, And some things made complete sense. I was like, oh, banana bread with cream cheese on it. Completely makes sense. And then there was some sort of deep fried stuffed banana with mascarpone cheese in it. And I was like, well, that makes sense, too. But then there was like banana and Swiss, which I was like, oh, that sounds like my breath would never recover from that ever again.
3: (laughs) See, there's part of me that wants to try these things. Of course. Of course. Because maybe we're missing out on a culinary delight.
4: It's possible. I have links. I'll share them. (laughs) (laughs) Great.
3: To go back to William and Roberta, as far as we can tell, they did not have a bad marriage. They were raising their children in what we would now kind of consider a Brady Bunch style. So it was a blended home. They each brought children into the marriage. And they were only married for a little more than two years when William died. And just about one year into
4: their marriage, tragedy struck when William's daughters, Annie Pearl and Fannie Mae, this was Roberta's stepdaughters, became unexpectedly ill. And they both died just a few months apart.
3: When William also became unexpectedly ill, Roberta cared for her sick husband. Really not something that you would consider out of ordinary for a spouse to do. She called on the family doctor who attended to William and gave him medication. And then the doctor was called back to the house when William's condition worsened. But he ended up tending to his patient on what would become his deathbed.
4: So there was nothing, at least superficially, that was suspicious about William's death. That is, until the attending physician had a eureka moment. He noticed sores and ruddy spots on William's body, which, you know, a little bit strange. The cause of death he had suspected was pneumonia. But with these spots, it was
3: probably not what he originally believed it to be. So how could anyone confuse the symptoms of arsenic poisoning with something like pneumonia, you might be wondering? Well, this actually does make some sense once you get to know a little bit more about arsenic. We've talked throughout this show about some of the strange side effects, but one of the reasons that arsenic has been such a popular method of poisoning throughout the centuries is that it really is a great mimic. So not only can arsenic be delivered in such a way
4: that it's pretty much impossible to place a perpetrator at the crime scene, its classic symptoms can range from everything like abdominal pain and vomiting, to really highly unpleasant burning sensation throughout the body, which doesn't to me sound like pneumonia. I've had pneumonia. I didn't have that.
3: Yeah. And depending how much you ingest and over how long a period of time, it can also cause organ damage, which is why it's easily overlooked and instead diagnosed as kidney failure or heart failure or a lung infection like bronchitis or pneumonia.
4: Exposure to arsenic can affect almost all systems of your body, and the longer you're exposed to it, the worst things can become for you. Signs of long-term exposure can also sometimes show up on your skin, like we heard from Williams' symptoms. And and that can look like everything from from just a, a, a flushing or a blushing to something like hyperpigmentation, which means your skin darkens. Sometimes you might get something called arsenical hyperkeratosis, which is a condition where your skin on the
3: palms and your soles begin to thicken. And because of the condition of William's skin and the concern about the number of recent deaths in the elder home, Mm. remember, Annie Pearl and Fannie Mae had died just about a year prior, the family doctor notified the coroner and he recommended a post-mortem examination be performed on William's body. And I thought this was really interesting of him.
4: He also went on to describe Roberta when he was in the house. So he said that Roberta was a careful talking, quote unquote, and also, quote unquote, emotionless woman when he was there. He suspected arsenic poisoning, he suspected she was guilty of doing it, and he suggested that an investigation into Roberta be opened.
3: Atlanta police eventually claimed that between 1938 and 1952, numerous individuals died under suspicious circumstances while they lived in Roberta's household. It fell to Detective J.E. Helms to compile a list of individuals who had died while living with Roberta, including family in Watkinsville, Georgia, where her brother lived, and in her former homes in Atlanta's Northeast and Northwest neighborhoods.
4: So we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. But when we come back, we're going to talk about the very, very, very long list of Roberta's victims. Very, very, very. very. very.
3: hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to. But on my day to day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older at <laughs> that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie, and it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot for 10% off your first order.
0: Escape to Summer with Victoria's Secret.
3: Your home should be your haven, and everyone wants to feel safe at home. If you travel a lot, it's really important that your home is secure when you're gone, and that your pets are also safe. Simply Safe is advanced home security that puts you first. Simply Safe sent me a home security package, and I was really blown away by all the cameras and the quality of them. When I travel, I could check in on my cats anytime, day or night, and I sleep better knowing that once our alarm is set at night, I know that I'll be alerted if anyone tries to enter the house. Simply Safe has been named in U.S. News and World Report's Best Home Security Systems for five years running. It's also been ranked Best Customer Service in Home Security by Newsweek. By partnering with Simply Safe, I've finally gotten real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Get an exclusive 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash criminalia. That's simplysafe, S I M P L I S A F com slash criminalia. There's no safe like simply safe.
1: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect.
2: of note other chub rub shorts ingeniously crafted with a moisture wicking yarn to ensure you remain at least one degree cooler and entirely free from the dreaded chafing, perfect for every season. These shorts can be discreetly worn under your clothes offering a delightful alternative to traditional cycling shorts. Whether you are at the gym, hiking, or simply enjoying a day in a skirt or dress, they are your ideal companion. Remember, dear listener, the more you snag, the more you save. With free shipping on select orders, don't delay in experiencing the fashion revolution that is snag at snagtights.us. You drove me out.
3: Welcome back to Criminalia. Now we're going to start talking about how, although many of Roberta's relatives died allegedly of pneumonia, they probably actually did not, in fact, die of that.
4: (laughs) So, during their investigation, Roberta was accused of poisoning more than a dozen relatives, as we mentioned earlier, and that included everyone from husbands, which were three, which we're counting common-law husbands, which was common at the time, uh, four of her children... Three stepchildren, as well as her mother, a grandchild, a cousin, and maybe, maybe, we're not 100% sure on this one, the former wife of her recently deceased husband, William.
3: So pull up a seat, because the list of suspected victims compiled by Detective Helms is, as Maria suggested before the break, a lengthy one. I
4: believe I said very,
3: very, very. yes. <laughs> In case you weren't (laughs) clear.
4: Yeah, this is going to take a minute. So it's believed Roberta's first victim was John Woodard, who was 36 years old when he died in December of 1938. And John is
3: believed to have been Roberta's common law husband. James Thurmond, whose name may have been James, but it also may have been Willie, records are unclear, was Roberta's son from either her first or second marriage. He died in June of 1939, when he was just 13 years old. His cause of death was recorded as malnutrition and respiratory trouble.
4: Willie May and Lily Lou Thurmond were two of Roberta's daughters from either her first or her second marriage. Not exactly sure. Willie May died when she was just two weeks old. Lily Lou, whose name may have actually been Lizzie May. It's a little unclear was just one week old when she died.
3: Jimmy Lee Crane Hunter, Roberta's grandson, was just two years old when he died in December of 1941.
4: And then there was Gloria Evans, who was Roberta's cousin. And she was three years old when she died from suspected food poisoning, and that happened the day after Christmas in 1944.
3: James Garfield Crane was another of her suspected victims, also from food poisoning. Records about who James exactly was, though, are a bit of a maze. Some list James as having died in December of 1943 at the age of one. You could read a different set of historical accounts, however, and James Garfield Crane is listed as one of Roberta's husbands, who was 45 when he died in 1947. It could also be that these were, in fact, two different individuals, a father and son, so James Sr. and James Jr. That seems entirely plausible, but because the two descriptions have been confused and interchanged in various accounts over the years, we just don't really know exactly what the reality was there. We just know that someone died.
4: Roberta's mother, Kelly, sometimes Kelly is spelled C-O-L-L-I-E
3: like Collie died in 1945. Nora Scott Harris is the only person on this list who was actually a close family friend instead of a relative. And Nora was 93 when she died in December of 1951. And Roberta was the sole beneficiary of her insurance plan. That had also been the case with each of her relatives who had died.
4: And that takes us to Fannie Mae and Annie Pearl Elder, who were William's children from a previous marriage. Both died in the early 1950s, likely 1950 or and or 1951, it's a little unclear, um, but they died close together and the cause of their death, both girls, was reported to be complications of pneumonia. Fannie Mae was
3: 15 and Annie Pearl was nine. And then, of course, there is the Reverend William Elder, Roberta's third husband, who died in August of 1952.
4: So the cause of death for almost everyone on this list had been recorded as pneumonia, uremia, which is a form of kidney disease, or just generic food poisoning.
3: In response to the detective's list, the Fulton County coroner, who at the time was a man named Ed Almond, stated, and we are quoting him, this is an unheard of thing. Why this reads like something out of a storybook.
4: Yeah, but it was not a storybook. The coroner who examined the death certificates of each victim concluded that all of the listed causes of death in each case, including pneumonia and uremia, could actually
3: be presentations of arsenic poisoning, probably
4: long term.
3: And he was right on the money. Postmortem tests on the Reverend's body alone found enough arsenic to kill three men. And when Annie Pearl and Fannie Mae's bodies were exhumed and examined, arsenic was found in both their skin and their hair.
4: So with his testing complete, the medical examiner now believed Roberta was poisoning her victims by seasoning their food with arsenic powder. Now... If any of you are Agatha Christie detective novel fans, you might think that she'd probably noticed that your food had been tainted because she writes that arsenic has a sweet flavor. But that, like her novels, is pure fiction. What we know from experts today is that arsenic actually has no taste at all. And that's what makes it so perfect for anyone or a homemaker like Roberta to sprinkle it into the foods and drinks that she serves to her family.
3: Enough about Agatha Christie, Maria. Uh, we're getting back to reality and the story of Roberta's history. Yes. And as suspicions about Roberta continued to grow, other lucky-to-be-alive family members who had previously fallen ill with what they believed to be food poisoning, flu, or pneumonia after spending time in Roberta's home began to come forward to question her innocence. And they probably thanked their lucky stars a little bit, too. Yeah, no kidding, Right.
4: So during the investigation against her, insurance records revealed that Roberta had collected insurance benefits ranging from $50 all the way up to $3,000 during this period of time. Most of the payouts were between about $50 to $500, maybe $50 to $300, depending on which source you read, on at least a dozen relatives. And it dated all the way back to 1938. Most of the deaths occurred within a year or just slightly over a year after the insurance plan on the victim was opened. And Roberta, you can see what's coming here, was always the sole beneficiary on each plan.
3: On September 26, 1952, Roberta was arrested as a suspect in the death of her husband, William Elder. When we come
4: back, we're going to talk about the suspicious powder Roberta was seen taking from her brother's
0: farm. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret.
2: Don't delay in experiencing the fashion revolution that is Snag at snagtights.us.
3: Welcome back to Criminalia. We are talking about how Roberta Elder may have concealed poisoning her relatives with arsenic since 1938.
4: So, one of the most interesting pieces of Roberta's case is that Atlanta detectives were never able to figure out where she acquired the arsenic she was accused of using in these poisonings. Witnesses came forward offering stories that they saw her with a new stash of powder every time she visited her brother's farm near Watkinsville, which is roughly 70 miles outside of Atlanta. Her surviving children agreed, too. They believed she brought powder back from that farm.
3: Roberta, defending herself as one naturally would, insisted that the powder she kept on hand was just used to, and we quote her, kill plant insects. And that sounds pretty straightforward, actually. Like, we've all had to deal with things... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like aphids in our garden. Right. Diatomaceous earth works perfectly. Right. And maybe she was using it for this purpose because until the 1950s, most pesticides on the market were arsenic based. That was like the dominant ingredient in most <laughs> in most of those and rodents as well, as we've talked about many times before. So most housewives had it on hand. Roberta's alibi was that it was only to kill ants. Uh, and that probably wouldn't have been suspicious at all had her relatives not also been dying at an alarming rate. (laughs) But even so, this was all circumstantial evidence. Right. There were no eyewitnesses.
4: But there's also this interesting matter of Roberta and her bottle of milk of magnesia. This is perhaps one of the most strange and important pieces of the poisoning puzzle. If you don't know what it is, milk of magnesia was, and actually still is, a really commonly used over-the-counter product to treat heartburn and constipation. It wouldn't have been unusual to have a bottle or two in a medicine cabinet in homes across the U.S. in the 1940s and 50s, or today.
3: Right. And Roberta, who cared for her sick husbands, children, and other relatives, was known to dose out milk of magnesia to help with her loved one's gastrointestinal issues. She insisted that she did not place any of the, we quote, pink stuff she used to kill insects into her bottle of milk of magnesia and she insisted that she definitely did not give any such thing to her husband William.
4: But the detectives no matter how hard they tried could not produce even a single witness who actually ever saw Roberta mix arsenic powder or pink powder or any powder for that matter into
3: milk of magnesia or frankly
4: into anything else.
3: Yet, still, without any direct evidence, everything we've talked about has been circumstantial. The case still moved forward.
4: The state tried Roberta on one of three murder indictments. Yes, there were about a dozen potential victims that we read earlier, but the three that they went after her for were her husband,
3: William, and her two stepdaughters, Fannie Mae and Annie Pearl. Throughout the investigation and the trial, Roberta maintained her innocence. She never once let down her guard or in any way faltered.
4: During the trial, one witness testified Roberta had taken out a $500 insurance policy on her husband, William, shortly before the time of his death. And if we peek, this is kind of vicariously peeking into her financial affairs through this witness, Roberta was also apparently short on her accounts.
3: Roberta's trial went on for about two years, so from 1952 to 1954. And during that time, the local newspaper described her as, quote, cool as a cucumber throughout the proceedings. Before, during, and after, Roberta never confessed to any of the accusations against her.
4: No one will ever describe me as cool as a cucumber.
3: (laughs) Me either. (laughs)
4: By 1954, a grand jury returned a verdict against her. And you'll be shocked, shocked to hear that she was found guilty. And what's interesting to keep in mind is this was a verdict that was based on, as we said earlier, circumstantial evidence alone. Not only were there no witnesses, there wasn't even a clue of how Roberta got her quote-unquote pink powder, as she called it.
3: And speaking of that pink powder... As far as we can tell from the court records and media reports, no expert was ever called upon to test that powder to figure out if it was or was not arsenic or was any other type of poison. Pink powder is even often used in cosmetics as a way to create a natural look. So this thing that everyone is calling pink powder, we don't really know what it was. It could
4: have just been like a little, a little, you know, like loose powder makeup. We have no idea what it could have been. She wanted
3: to make the ants look beautiful.
4: Well, who doesn't?
3: (laughs) We like to think that they would have done some testing, but we cannot show that as fact because there's no evidence that that happened.
4: I mean, I'm amazed that they wouldn't have, but there is no evidence that they tested it at all. Um, So Roberta was then convicted of murdering her husband, William. And at the age of 45, give or take a year, because, you know, we've talked about that fuzzy record-keeping, she was sentenced to life in prison. And this is where the facts about Roberta Elder, her trial, and her sentencing pretty
3: much dry up. But that's not really where her impact dries up. Let's talk about Roberta who was a Black woman in Georgia in the 1940s, fared in the local press. If you've been listening to this season, you know that we sometimes talk about the media and how it can impact a trial, or at least how its coverage can get a city all riled up. And it doesn't even matter what country we've talked about. Italy, France,
4: the United States, people take sides, people get really interested in the story. And often, a story of a female accused will saturate media reports and reporters follow the story as it unfolds detail by detail, the women on trial often become sensationalized and it turns them into a bit of a celebrity. Um, Often, it's not because of anything more than the fact that they were women. The fairer sex, which I always put in quotes because I actually hate that term. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Women are supposed to care for the home, not kill the people in it, is what the
3: media gets. But perhaps surprisingly, Roberta's killing spree did not actually draw much attention from the mainstream press at all, which at this time in the United States meant the mainstream white newspapers across the nation. That's a
4: really good point. So let's look at the time and place Roberta lived in. The 1930s, 1940s were still the time when terror lynchings claimed the lives of black American men, women, and children across the country, not just in Georgia. Residential segregation was increasing and most white newspapers didn't have much of an interest in
3: following a story of a poor Black woman who murdered other Black people. But it was the woman, not her crimes, that they ignored. So let's talk about a woman for a moment named Nanny Doss. Nanny Doss was a white woman who, at almost the very same time as Roberta, was also busy poisoning a dozen of her own relatives. Nanny was responsible for as many as 11 poisoning deaths and perhaps more during the same time span that Roberta was going about her killings. Like Roberta, Nanny was a
4: poisoner who killed her husbands. She killed four of her five husbands and possibly another dozen or so relatives very similar to Roberta. And also like Roberta, she killed with arsenic and she was motivated to collect insurance money.
3: But what Nanny also had was media coverage, particularly white media coverage. They referred to her in, with some very cute names. She was called the Giggling Granny. Which, by the way,
4: do you know why they called her that? No. Okay, so I I, I looked it up
3: and it took me a little bit to
4: find it, but um, every time they would ask her about someone that she had murdered, she would giggle. She wouldn't reply. She would just laugh.
3: Oh, Oh, nanny. (laughs) Oh, nanny. (laughs) That's not good for you. (laughs) Yeah, that's... You haven't had media training. Um, So, (laughs) in addition to the giggling granny, she was also called the Lonely Hearts Killer, the Black Widow, and Lady Bluebeard. She was also called a self-made widow in the white press. Today,
4: more than 70 years after Nanny's crimes, you can still find out a ton of information about her life if you go on YouTube. Her name also appears in the top 10 most notable female serial killers.
3: Contrast the ready availability of information on Nanny Doss with the fact that we couldn't find Reliable information about Roberta's date of birth or her date or manner of death. And if you think back to the detective's list, we couldn't reliably identify even the names of all of her possible victims.
4: Some experts argue that the race and gender of a killer and a victim affects not only whether that killer or victim receives any attention, but also how much attention the accused receives from the press and the public. So, unbalanced reporting by the news media at this time, can and does send a message that white killers and white victims, particularly if they are white females, hold more currency and are given more consideration than those who are racial minorities.
3: But the black press, especially the Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago Defender, did report on both Roberta's trial and on her victims. They were not necessarily kind, after all she was, on trial for murder, but they did follow her story. And it was in the Black press that she got the nickname Mrs. Bluebeard.
4: So you may have heard that nickname before, Bluebeard, in regard to killers. And there's actually a kind of a longstanding story behind it. But don't confuse Bluebeard with Blackbeard, who was a pirate. Bluebeard's story started as a French folktale, first published As long ago as about the late 1600s or so. And it it goes
3: at a very, very, very high level like this. A wealthy man marries and then kills his wife. And then does it again and again and again. You can repeat that seven or 77 times, depending on the telling (laughs) of the story. And while the moral of this story is debatable, depending on the criticism you read... The term bluebeard has ever since been used in reference to men who kill their wives. And if you just add a missus or a lady in front of it, it becomes a derogatory term referring to a woman who has killed her own husband or husbands and perhaps other family members. I also wonder
4: (laughs) if, I mean, there's, there's actually a lot, we've talked a lot about black widows so far this season, but we haven't really talked a lot about bluebeard's. Mm -mm. And I wonder if it was just kind of like, let's shake it up a little bit, but we'll never know.
3: Yeah, it is interesting because accused women who are known to kill and collect insurance payouts with the death of their spouses are very, very frequently known as black widows. So Roberta, who allegedly killed at least three of her husbands for financial gain, certainly would fall into that category. But whether you want to call her a Mrs. Bluebeard or a Black Widow, because of the number of deaths she was linked to by police, the Black press decided to simplify things and just started referring to Roberta as a serial killer. Which is
4: apparently after her trial, truth, right? (laughs) So if you take a look at what the FBI profile of a serial killer in the United States today looks like, It's actually kind of fascinating, but it has nothing to do with Roberta. In fact, it's kind of the opposite of Roberta. It's almost always a white male who kills people that he does not know. Not family members, not close friends, maybe somebody he's seen, but doesn't know. But Roberta, who is believed to have killed more than a dozen relatives in about the same number of years, was black and female. And among all the known serial killers in the United States, only about 8% of them are women.
3: So she's like a tiny, tiny percentage of a tiny, tiny percentage. Exactly, exactly. It's believed that because women are more methodical and precise than male serial killers, they often are able to continue their killing sprees for an average of eight years before they're caught. Kind of scary. Yeah, Roberta, if you'll recall from earlier in the episode, killed her victims between 1938, possibly even earlier, all the way to 1952. Male serial killers, on the other hand, average a streak of just about half that, roughly four years before being caught. And also women, interestingly, are more likely to kill people they know.
4: More on experts on serial killers. So in particular, female serial killers they report that these are women who often use methods that are considered a more low profile than those that men favor. So what that would look like is this. Women serial killers are more likely to murder with, say, a slow acting arsenical poison rather than maybe carrying out a violent act like shooting their victim with a gun.
3: Female serial killers are also often reportedly involved in activities such as theft or fraud before they begin murdering. We don't know about Roberta's life before she was accused. Again, in part because she was Black, there just aren't a lot of records about her. There's just nothing. If she happened to be a thief or if she led a fairly straight-laced life, that's all lost to history. But what we do know is that if she did it, she, like other female serial killers, does appear to have done it for the profit.
4: Indeed. So, Holly, it's time for your poison, and I have to suggest that whatever it is, let's not serve it with bananas and cheese.
3: <laughs> I did toy with the idea briefly of you know, like trying
4: to make a shake. <laughs> Well, I was thinking
3: about some sort of like banana liqueur dairy thing. Yes. But I decided that just felt a little too grisly for me today. I'm not in that mood. I went so basic with this one. There was
4: something about Roberta's story that just didn't want me to, I I didn't want to make a joke Exactly.
3: Exactly. So I went super duper basic, a little on the nose, but as someone who lives in Atlanta and loves the city desperately, I just thought it would be a, a nice way to nod to the city more than the actual story of Roberta. Mm-hmm. So I made a beautiful iced tea. As you know, we love our sweet iced tea in the South. And then, uh, and then I just poured an ounce and a half of peach schnapps into it and it was delightful. <laughs> I don't know who wouldn't want to sit on their porch and drink that, but as I was drinking it, it is, especially if you start with sweet tea, it becomes Mm -hmm. very sweet and can be a little syrupy and heavy since a schnapps is a little bit more in that space. So it occurred to me that for someone that doesn't like that level of heaviness, you could also sub in like a flavored, a peach infused vodka and it would be delightful. Now that's where I'm going. There you go. And then we'll make different drinks when you come to visit. <laughs> I know the the weather everywhere has been bananas this year. We're still having days that are warm enough in Atlanta that we could enjoy a, a cold iced tea. So that's what I'm going with this week.
4: Well that sounds delicious. That sounds delicious.
3: Yes. You can throw a pitcher together and it's perfect for entertaining. <laughs> um, an hour, <laughs> yes. Thank you once again for joining us for our ongoing discussion of the Lady Poisoners this season. If you would like to subscribe to the show, that sounds absolutely delightful to us. We promise not to serve you bananas and cheese that are tainted. At all. Uh, <laughs> you can do that on the iHeartRadio app at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.